Straw Hut Media. The rainbow flag has been a symbol of pride since they flew the original flag at the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Parade celebration on June 25, 1978. A rainbow is a spectrum of light, but when you think about a rainbow, do you think of a continuum or do you think of a series of individual colors? Even though we know that a rainbow is a range of light frequencies that blend smoothly into each other, we perceive bands of color. We perceive categories. As humans, we put labels on everything we see. It helps us make sense of the world around us. And over the years, researchers have found that when we struggle to put something into a category, we like it less. A few years ago, the journal PLOS One published the findings of a study in which the subjects were shown a variety of images of men and women that had been edited to make them appear gender ambiguous. One group was asked to first identify the people in the photos by gender and then rate them on attractiveness. The second group was asked to simply evaluate the attractiveness without categorizing them into genders. The study found that the first group, the ones who had to first assign a gender, found all the faces relatively unattractive, while the other group had preferred certain faces. The researchers found that the difficulty of the mental work of classifying something hard to classify produced a negative effect that transferred to the face itself. The limitations of black and white views of gender and sexuality are what caused that discomfort, and that means the first step towards making the experiences of gender nonconforming people better is to break the binary. My guest today, Addison Rose Vincent, identifies as trans-feminine non-binary, and they started a consulting firm called Just That, Break the Binary. At 27 years old, Addison has been living in LA and working as an advocate for the genderqueer community since their time at Chapman University. Defying binary categorization, even in a progressive city like Los Angeles, isn't easy. But Addison's views on education, strength, and above all, compassion are inspiring. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. My name is Addison Rose Vincent, and I use they, them pronouns. Born in Canada and raised in Michigan, Addison made their way into activism and community organizing while attending Chapman University. Over the years, they've taken on a lot of leadership roles working for groups that protect and uplift LGBTQ people. Now, they're the executive director of the Intersex and Genderqueer Recognition Project, the first and leading organization in the U.S. to address the right to identify as non-binary on government-issued documents. We go state by state and we push for legislation that allows for a third gender option on state IDs. So in California, we have X in addition to male and female. They founded Break the Binary, LLC. We provide monthly social events and life skill opportunities for non-binary, intersex, genderqueer, gender non-conforming people in Los Angeles. Addison is also the founder of NBULA, which stands for the Non-Binary Union of Los Angeles. We focus on providing LGBTQ consulting, 
education, training, strategic planning for businesses and organizations. And lastly, Addison is the founder of History Reimagined, which is a new concept that works to prevent and break cycles of domestic violence and the school-to-prison pipeline. That's through um, Blue Shield of California. Needless to say, they stay very busy. When Addison and I sat down together, we spent a long time talking about pronouns, gender fluidity, and a lot more. So let's start with the basics. Pronouns. Pronouns are the words or terms that we use instead of a person's name. So for one person, maybe let's say their name is Joe. Maybe Joe goes by he, him pronouns. So we would say, I know Joe. He is a student. I know him. His favorite color is green, right? For maybe someone named Sally, maybe Sally uses she, her pronouns. And maybe we'd refer to her as, you know, I know Sally. She is a student. I know her. Her favorite color is green. For me, I'm someone that uses pronouns that are they, them. They're gender neutral. They're something that I identify with um, and that make me feel affirmed and seen. So when you talk about me, you would say, I know Addison. I know them. They are a student and their favorite color is green, right? So those are ways that you would use my pronouns as well. Now, there's more than just he, she, and they pronouns. Um, there might be Z and Zer. There's some people that use no pronouns at all, but pronouns ultimately are up to that person to decide. Z and Zer are actually German gender-neutral pronouns. The most common gender-neutral pronouns in the U.S. are they and them. They, them, I think people have some trouble understanding how to use it in a singular context, so I tell them a few things. One is that they and them has been used in a singular context um, to refer to one person for more than... I think, four or five centuries. If you look back at Shakespearean plays, you can see that they and them is used as a singular pronoun for a person. It's actually, I think, used in literature and documentation longer as a singular pronoun than the singular you, which is interesting as well. Um, So there's a lot of history of using they, them as a singular pronoun. And ultimately, too, um, I know that the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and the APA style formatting for citations has now said that they and them should be used and can be used in a singular context, too. So. Sometimes people get confused with the terms sex and gender. Sex usually refers to one's physical biological makeup, like their chromosomes, their hormones, or their genitalia. And oftentimes we think about sex in male or female forms. Male meaning that you have to have um, XX chromosomes, right? No, no, XY chromosome, XY chromosomes, right? I always get confused about which one is which. Yeah, we'll Google it. so anyway, you have to have you know certain type of chromosomes. You have to have um, testosterone, uh, penis, testes. There's a certain type of um, checklist for male, and the same thing goes for females too, right? Having a vagina, having ovaries, having um, high levels of estrogen, et cetera, et cetera. But not everyone is going to fall into those two categories, right? Now, when it comes to gender. Gender refers to that social construct. It refers to the roles that we might adopt to based on our sex. It refers to a lot of different characteristics, social characteristics that one person has. And we know terms like man and woman as gender terms as well. When the baby is born, we don't usually announce them by their sex term of male or female. We usually assign a gender to that baby based on their genitalia of it's a boy or it's a girl. So depending on your culture, 
that could also be the gender itself could be very different in the U.S. than it is somewhere else, right? Yeah, culture absolutely does shape gender as well. What is defined as a man or woman here might be different in another, you know, part of the world or another another country too. Um, I also think too about how in many other cultures around the world, including here in Indigenous America before colonization, that third genders and fourth genders were not only recognized, but celebrated and revered. I think about in Indigenous America, there are two-spirit people. In Hawaii, there's Mahu folks. In um, Samoan Islands, there's the Fa'afafin. In India, there's Hijra folks. And these are all people that were seen as spiritual leaders, community healers, people that were worthy of celebration and respect. And after colonization, too, are now kind of deemed as lesser than, as people who are worthy of being stripped of their rights, being stripped of housing or employment opportunities and so on and so forth. So it's interesting how over time gender has changed and how our culture or you know European cultures have imposed that binary on other cultures around the world. There are actually many, many cultures all over the world that recognize third and fourth genders. There are the Guebedoche in the Dominican Republic, the Feminiello in Italy, the Bernesha in Albania, the Zanith in Oman, and the Occult in Myanmar, just to name a few. So, you know, those third genders, they can refer to uh, possibly intersex folks, people who are on the intersex spectrum, but maybe even people who have a binary sex, but in terms of their own gender identity, they transcended whatever they were assigned at birth to that third gender, fourth gender, whatever it be. Um, And when it comes to intersex too, I'll also just define that we talked about sex earlier as being that biological makeup. And intersex refers to anyone whose biological makeup just doesn't match that full checklist of male or female. Oftentimes when we think of intersex, we think about the term hermaphrodite, which is outdated and we no longer use that term. Instead, we use intersex and it can refer to people with maybe a mixture of genitalia, maybe it's a um, maybe it's varying hormone levels or chromosomes. Um, oftentimes, people might have like XXX chromosomes or um, XXY. Um, those are common instances of intersex traits. When it comes to having a penis and vagina at the same time, that's a pretty uncommon thing to happen for intersex folks, but it does happen. It's a really small, small percentage within the intersex community, which is also a very small percentage in itself. Research into intersex statistics is complicated because there are so many different ways to be intersex. A common number given by people in the medical community is 1 in 2,000, or 0.05% of the population. But that number only refers to ambiguous genitalia at birth. And a more recent study done in Istanbul found a rate of 1.3% for that same measurement. Still, these studies rely exclusively on visual representation at birth. Other, more thorough research suggests that intersex people make up about 1.7% of the world population. It's just as common as being redheaded, which is interesting to think about that if you know someone in your life that's that has red hair that you may know someone that's also intersex or you yourself might be intersex but maybe that was something that you were told to be ashamed of or to not talk about or it was erased from you oftentimes intersex people don't know that they're intersex for a long time i met this one 50 year old intersex woman when i was doing advocacy two years ago when we were doing legislation here in california and she didn't know that she was intersex until a couple years earlier 
when her husband asked her about her body. And she learned then through talking to her family and talking to doctors that when she was a child, she had had various forms of surgeries and procedures done on her as a child that she didn't understand. And that's something that's common in the U.S., right? And around the world. So you could be born intersex and your parents or a doctor is going to decide what they think you should look like. Is that like that? That's what happens. So then that person could be more feminine. And because of a doctor, they're decided, nope, you are going to be male because I say so. You got it. I think that we live in a culture where when a person is born with a body that doesn't quite fit into the standard, that doesn't quite fit into what we understand, we immediately see it as wrong. We immediately sign it as something that's bad. When we can't compute it as being this or that, right or wrong, right? It doesn't make sense to us. So we automatically try to fix it. And the truth is, is that a lot of intersex people don't need to be fixed. A lot of these kids shouldn't be fixed. And ultimately, if they do want to be fixed or do want to be corrected on or whatever that be, that should be their choice. It shouldn't be up to the parents or up to the surgeons to operate on them or change their bodies or assign them anything when they're first born or as children. They should be able to have the autonomy to decide what to do with their own bodies. And so those, those, well, we're speaking kind of broadly, but those kids, they're, these are not like life-threatening conditions where it ha- it's all based on aesthetics. Aesthetic and misconception, too, around what it means to be intersex. And of course, going back to this stigma of being outside the binary, not conforming to male or female, man or woman, it's something that everyone's trying to change and correct and fix. And again, like I said, it's not necessarily needing up to being fixed. It's perfectly healthy and natural and more common than we know. When we come back, how Addison broke the binary, plus on learning transphobia, encountering transphobia, and healing. Non-binary refers to people who just don't identify in the traditional binary of man or woman. So this refers to gender, but sometimes people also like to extend the the non-binary umbrella to include sex as well. So some intersex people will identify as non-binary because they're intersex, um, and sometimes not. I am someone who's non-binary. I identify as non-binary because I just don't feel like a man or woman. I just don't identify as either. I've never felt that the binary has suited me, and I felt just so much more than that too. Um, Many non-binary people come in different forms. We all look different and we might use different pronouns too. Not every non-binary person is going to use a gender neutral pronoun or just use one pronoun. I know many non-binary people who go by she or go by he or mix it up and use maybe all different types of pronouns too. Like I, I know a lot of people who use, I want to say it's he, them. Like that, that they like, like she, them, he, them, mm-hmm. but it's like an incorporation of both the they, them pronouns and then 
the gendered pronouns. You got it. Yeah. So it's really about preference. It's really up to preference too when it comes to pronouns because pronouns are just like your name, you know? Your name doesn't always completely define you either too. It's just a nice little characteristic of who you are or a nice title to the book that you are, right? But it doesn't completely define who you are. Pronouns are kind of the same way too. It's really important to use pronouns because just like someone's name, you should use their correct name and you should use their correct pronouns. Um, however they decide that you want them to use. And then when people don't, that's when we start getting into like misgendering. Yeah. So misgendering is when we refer to a person with the wrong gender identity or the wrong pronoun. And so for me, I'm someone who is male assigned at birth, but I don't identify as a man. I don't identify as a boy. I don't identify as masculine. And so when I'm walking down the street or I see even a, a friendly face or a stranger, and they call me he and him or call me or refer to me as a boy or a man and stuff, that is misgendering because you're not seeing me for who I am. And that's what it comes down to is it's about seeing a person, understanding that how we see a person visually in front of us and that that ability to look at a person doesn't mean that you're really seeing us and understanding us and supporting us too. So that's why it's so important to never assume anyone's gender never assume someone's pronouns, and never assume someone's journey either too. That's why it's really important for us as people, as allies, as community members, to sit down and get to know each other's stories, to learn more about how we can be there for each other, but how to really see them too. When you're consulting, how do you teach people to, because I would say it's probably not as common when you meet someone Maybe it's not that it's not common, but you're not taught. Let's say that in school, you don't learn, like when you walk up to whoever this person is, a, a kid, you don't say, oh, what is your, that's not the first thing you say, right? It's like, what's your pronoun? And sometimes, like you said, someone may be Sally, but then their pronouns are they, them. Yep. Right? So how do you teach, how, how do you help people understand? How do you teach them how to do that without, you know, feeling awkward or whatever? Yeah, I think that, first of all, it's just letting folks know that we're all on this journey together. Um, whether you are cisgender, and cisgender refers to people whose gender identity that they were assigned at birth, that they still um, identify with it, and that's something that most people um, identify as, which is totally fine. Um, so it, whether you're cisgender or transgender or non-binary or whatever that be, we are all conditioned to transphobia. We are all conditioned to homophobia and queerphobia. And it's all on us as individuals to unlearn that and unpack that too. So I try to create spaces where people don't feel shame around addressing their own isms. They don't feel shame around addressing their own shame as well. And that they know that it's okay to unpack that, to learn that, and to unlearn a lot of it too. Um, when it comes to you know, getting people to really think too about how to relearn how to use pronouns too. I just think about, you know, times when there have been celebrities or friends who have changed their names or changed the last names even too when they get married or they have a new nickname, right? And these are all things that we like to adjust to and we're okay with, right? Because we want to be affirming and sensitive. So we need to really extend that same idea and that same mentality to trans people and non-binary people too, about saying, okay, if you use a different name or a different pronoun than I thought you did, okay, it should be an easy switch for me. I'll 
work on that and I'll know to use that one for you, right? And it's really about being affirming to the individual rather than assuming based on how they look and how we interpret it too. So that's how I kind of break it down for people. Did you, do you feel like you had to unlearn all those things? Absolutely. And did it take you time? Was it quick for you? Was it? I have um, been out as non-binary for, wow, it's been since 2013. So it's been about six years, almost over six years. And I myself have still been on a journey of unlearning and unpacking my own transphobia and my own shame. And when I look in the mirror as a gender non-conforming person, there are days when I go, wow, I look amazing. I'm so happy with how I look. I feel gender euphoric. I feel so aligned with who I am. And then there's some days where that transphobia kind of creeps up still. And I look at myself and I go, what the hell are you doing? Shouldn't you look like a man or woman? Shouldn't you conform to the binary? So I know that unlearning my own transphobia, unlearning my own queerphobia, is going to be a lifelong process. When I walk out into public spaces with my partner, who's a transgender man, and we are together too, I still am sometimes hesitant about holding hands in public or having any other form of public, um, you know, PDA. Um... And so it's something that I'm constantly unlearning and getting more comfortable with with myself. And that also translates with how, with how I see my own community sometimes, too. So it's, it's a journey. It's a journey for me. It's a journey for our community. And it's a journey for everyone to unpack and unlearn that. I feel that um, it's, a, it's a balance and it's a dance sometimes, too. Um, I feel that, you know, we are fortunate to live in a really progressive area, I want to say. Um, and I and I say that hesitantly because I feel that, you know, there are many places throughout the U.S. that are deemed as not progressive or unsafe. And sometimes that's the places where there's the most radical activism happening and the community is the strongest. I think about the South. I think about, um, you know, Texas. I think about Atlanta. I think about Georgia. Um, I think about so many different cities and states, too, throughout the South that may be seen as unsafe, but they truly are. Um, but for me, I think walking out in Los Angeles too, I think there is a, a level of privilege and a level of luxury that we have too with knowing that there are a lot of out and open LGBTQ people nearby and around and that we have a little bit more freedom here too to be open about who we are and to hold hands. Um, and at the same time, I still get harassed. I still get treated sometimes really horribly walking down the street too and i have to learn how to reframe that violence as not being about me but it's about that person being hurt it's about that person projecting their own pain sometimes i think too that the people who are trying to hurt us the most are the people who may be in the community themselves but have so much shame and so much trauma and so much pain that they just take it out on us and you just have to be strong enough to know that and realize that, that it's not about you at all mm -mm. because you don't really affect their life at all when you walk by. You got it. The other day I was walking down the street with my dog, Stevie, and I take him out for walks every morning. And typically he has certain spots where he likes to pee and, you know, do his thing. And in the morning, um, this was a few weeks ago, I was walking out and by this bus stop, this guy was sitting there. And as I was walking next to him, 
he started yelling at me and harassing me about my pants in particular. I was wearing these girl sweatpants. He was saying, he was saying that um, I can't be wearing them, that I look like a faggot and all these different things. And in that very moment, Stevie decided that he needed to pee. Now, typically, as someone who has been harassed on the street, I try to keep walking. I try to keep my head down. I try not to escalate the situation because of that fear of what could happen. Fear of what has happened to over 20 transgender women of color in this country, right? Uh, Just this year. Just this year. uh, Well, over 300 around the world, too, in the past year. Um, I think about so many other queer and trans people who have been attacked and killed just for being who they are and being unapologetic, right? So I typically keep my head down and I just try not to say anything or do anything, just get out of the situation. But like I said, my dog in that moment decided that he needed to pee right then and right there. So I stopped. And the guy is still yelling at me. And I did something that I've never done before. And I looked him in the eyes. And he stopped yelling at me. And we just made eye contact for about five seconds. And in that five seconds, I looked deep into his eyes. And I realized that this was a person who was in deep pain. This was a person who felt powerless. And he was trying to get his power away from me. This was someone who needed help. And at five seconds, he broke eye contact. and He looked at the ground. And all I asked him was, are you okay? And immediately he said, I'm sorry. And for me, it completely shifted how I saw him. It completely shifted the interaction. And I no longer felt powerless as I often do when I'm harassed down the street. Instead, I felt powerful. And so I told him that I wish him a good day and I kept walking. It makes me very sad that you that you have to endure that. That's really hard and it takes a lot of strength. But what you said when he averted his eye contact from you, it be, it means that he realized you knew his truth, that he was upset about something else, wasn't you? But he had to take it out on you. So it does, it takes a lot that you endure that just to walk the dog. When I walk down the street too, it's I'm constantly hypervigilant about interactions like that. And I know that I have the power to act in a way that is proactive, that is beneficial, that won't create or continue any more cycles of trauma or shame or pain. But it's a lot to carry. And it's a lot for, I mean, I'm someone who's a white non-binary person. You have to think about all the trans and non-binary people of color who are navigating so many more obstacles and so many more systems than me too, who go through many more times that type of violence than I do as well, right? But it's already hard enough just being me, walking down the street, trying to get services, getting looks, getting stares, and me constantly worried about, okay, what's going to happen next? What are that, what's that person going to say? Is that person going to deny me a service or treat me a certain way or call me something? And what am I going to do in that moment too? It's tough to always think about and to be constantly on guard about. And that's why I understand, too, that within our own trans and non-binary communities, that because of all that trauma, because of all of that hypervigilance, 
it's sometimes really hard for us to trust ourselves and to trust each other. And so we see a lot of internal conflict sometimes. And sometimes I even hear people outside the community talk about us as being manipulative or lazy or attention-seeking or all these things, but those are all just signs of needing connection, being overwhelmed, being tired of all the shit that we go through and that we need help. Ryan, do you have a tissue back there? <laughs> do you want to tell me a little bit about what's coming Sorry. up for you as well? I would, <laughs> I would, I would love to hear about what's what else is coming up for you. You are like looking into my soul. But so when you said that, I'm like, you really. I'm sure that man felt very. I honestly, I'm sure he was so taken aback that he was just like, "Oh fuck!" Like I don't know what I did. I did something, and this person can see inside me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. That never happens. That's so. okay. No, you're good. I don't know why. It was just a very powerful story. Thank you. You know, it's one thing to go to a business mm. and teach them how to how to teach their employees, how to treat people correctly that are different, right? Yeah. How did you do it with your own family? Mm. I'm very fortunate to have a family that is not only tolerating but accepting and empowering and they celebrate me like there's no tomorrow i was born in canada and raised in michigan and i actually moved out to california when i was 17 because i was so scared of what my parents would say when i did come out as gay back in, um, this is 2010. And when I did move out here and I started school and I created my whole safety network of friends just in case something bad were to happen if I came out to them. Um, well, once I came out to them, they were super supportive. And then in fact, they said, like, they're like, Addison, we knew. <laughs> I was like, damn it. <laughs> but since, you know, coming out as gay and then queer and then trans and non-binary and then so many more things. Um, they've still continued to love me and support me and everything too, but you know, it's still a journey with them too, trying to get them to understand new terms and how I identify and why I identify the way that I do. So when it comes to working with my family, it's been all about patience, knowing that people who um, are you know typically older have therefore been conditioned to and have been around um, using pronouns and using terms and understanding ways of living a certain way for a longer time. So when I introduce, you know, my they, them pronouns to someone maybe of my age, they might be able to get it a little bit faster than maybe my parents. My parents, I have been out to them as non-binary using they, them pronouns for, like I said, six and a half, almost seven years, and they still struggle with my they, them pronouns. And it's all about patience with me too. I know that they love me. I know that they they see me and that they're still unlearning and working through their own understandings of gender, their own transphobia, their own ways of the world. So it's, it's always a journey with them too, but I know that their intentions are good. And that's what I always remind people, no matter where I go, is that intentions are the most important aspect to any type of allyship and to any type of work. So if you go in with good intentions that you want to support, you want to help, I know that you're doing good work. Now, I know that also too, 
You're carrying your own isms, carrying that history, carrying those things. And that's a journey in itself to unlearn. Like I said earlier too, I'm constantly unlearning my own transphobia. I'm still trying to understand how to see people as, you know, just to see people, not just to assume who they are. So even if I'm still unlearning that and I'm still working through that at the age of 27, then I know that maybe folks that are my parents' age or older might need a little bit more patience too. And like you mentioned, you know, in Los Angeles, we are exposed to a lot more diversity mm-hmm. than maybe in Michigan. Culture is con- constantly conditioning you to like male, female, he, her, that's it, you know? So I think that that's part of it is like you're unlearning it while also being taught it at the same time through mm-hmm. repetition, essentially. I think that from for culture, me, I'm, I'm just in a place where I know that I may never get like the, the, you know, people, my family or sometimes my friends even too, to get the they, them pronouns correct every single time. I've had to let go of that because I think that it was frustrating me for too long to expect them to just get it every single time. And I wish that that could be the world that we live in where people just automatically understand pronouns. And that's what the world, that's the type of world that I think I'm working towards. Um, But in the meantime, um, I just have to learn to let sometimes some of those expectations go, unfortunately, and just know that the person's coming to me with a good heart and with good intentions. So maybe I'm lowering my standards a little bit too much, but I feel like um, I just end up being disappointed every time if um, I don't hold that patience sometimes. It's tough. Like, again, it's a a dance, it's balance, um, and every person's going to react differently and choose how to um, identify differently and that's all it's all valid it's all correct addison has been out as non-binary for about six years when we come back we'll talk about growing up in michigan and coming out in california plus the importance of intersectionality in genderqueer advocacy and what happens when your role model detransitions Because of growing mainstream representation, words like trans and transgender are much more widely recognized than other gender nonconforming terms. Addison self-identifies as trans-feminine, non-binary. Well, first of all, trans and transgender, this refers to um, you know, a person who is, does not identify with the gender that they were assigned at birth. So there are transgender women who may have been assigned, let's say, boy or male at birth, and they came out as girls and women at some point. Um, there are maybe trans men who were first assigned, you know, female or girl at birth and came out as boys and men, right? And that journey will look different for every single trans person too. And, you know, there's also people beyond the binary who are non-binary who were assigned male at birth or female at birth or whatever, right? and came out at some point as non-binary. Trans feminine in particular, this refers to, again, using that trans, so not identifying with the gender you were assigned at birth. But trans feminine, for me, encapsulates that I feel feminine at my core. I don't feel like a woman. I don't feel like a trans woman. But I do feel this femininity at my core. And because I wasn't, when I was assigned at birth, you know, as a male and boy, because I was also assigned to be masculine growing up, because that's what boys and males are expected to be, because I don't identify as masculine either, 
I identify as feminine, I've adopted that term of trans feminine because that's something that wasn't what was assigned to me, but something that I claim now. So I feel feminine at my core. I also feel non-binary because I just don't feel like a man or a woman. So I've embraced both trans feminine and non-binary. Did you have, growing up, did you have the freedom to be gender non-conforming? Or do you feel like you did, you, you know, had to conform? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yes, I felt that I had to conform and I felt that it wasn't really necessarily because of my parents and it wasn't necessarily because of the adults around me either too. It was actually because of the, the kids on the playground and my peers and it all really started, I want to say, when I was maybe like five or six. That's when it goes back to the bullying, the bullying on the playground and calling me names and shaming me for being feminine, shaming me for having, quote unquote, like queer homosexual traits, right? Um, for acting like a girl. Those were all things that I was shamed for for a long time. And so I felt that I couldn't express myself in a way that was fully feminine or gender non-conforming. Um, I found ways to still be um, able to express myself. I danced a lot and did a lot of art. Um, but even then, I didn't feel free. I didn't feel like myself. I often looked at the girls that I danced with and I wished that I was them, you know? I do remember back in college, not college, um, in high school. This is back in Michigan. There was um, an openly gender-fluid person that went to my school and they were two years er earlier or two years older than me and going to homecoming and going to prom they wore these beautiful oak tour like outfits and were unapologetic about being gender non-conforming and gender fluid and i saw all of the pain that they went through i saw all of the um bullying that they faced too i saw i saw all of it and because I saw that, it registered with me that that was something that I shouldn't do, that I wasn't ready to do, that I was, I felt that if I did express at that time and face all of that, that I may not make it out alive, you know? So I hid in my shame. I hid under the queer phobia and transphobia um, to protect myself, right? From myself and from others. And even though, you know, they went on and had a happy life and they um, could have been a symbol of resilience for me and a symbol of confidence or giving me that, that strength to be able to come out at that time, it just wasn't the same for me. Which is why I tell people too that folks who are so out and open and that representation that we need isn't going to automatically register for someone as being, okay, now I can come out. Sometimes it's that, okay, you're doing that, and I'm going to see how that works for you. And if it works for you and you get celebrated or rejected or shamed or whatever that be, that's going to determine whether or not I'm ready to come out or not too, you know? Everyone's coming out journey is going to be different. That person eventually, um, you know, served as my role model eventually when I did come out though. And even though I wasn't ready at the time to come out, Later in life, in college, when I did come out um, as non-binary and trans, I felt that I could reflect back on that person and go, okay, they did it, and now I can do it now, now that I'm ready, now that I'm stronger, 
now that I have a better community around me. And unfortunately, a few years ago, that person actually detransitioned and now runs a right-wing video blog on YouTube. And it hurt to learn about that. It hurt to see someone who was my inspiration, my role model in a way too, to now be posting videos that are vehemently against trans people and against the community. And it again goes back to me about shame and it goes back to pain and trauma. And I think about all the things that they went through when I was there with them in high school. I think about whether their family was accepting or not. I think about whether being back in Michigan, what type of community that they had and thinking too, again, like I said earlier, that our own community can sometimes not be able to trust each other or sometimes take out our anger and trauma on each other, right? I think about all those possibilities for this person and what could have driven them to the point that they needed to detransition. They needed to now post these horrible, violent videos even. And I just feel sad. I feel sad for that person. I feel sad for so many other trans people who still can't come out or feel that they need to go back to the closet because of fear, because of pain, because of trauma. Did you have a low point that you got to before you came out? Because it had to have been really hard knowing, like even seeing that person Mm. living the truth you wanted to be able to live. Was there a moment that you remember where you were like, I don't know, you look in the mirror and you're like, this is not it. This is not the person. This is not the life. This isn't what's supposed to be happening, you know? I think that it's, it for me, it was less of a moment of, you know, I can't do this anymore. And it was more of a moment. There was a moment for me when I went, aha, and it clicked. And that was specifically for me. I, I will always remember this. Um, it was... 2010 I was a freshman in college and it was Halloween and that Halloween I was like you know what I'm gonna dress up as a sexy witch because I had just come out as gay and I was like I can do a little drag now you know I'm, I'm out as gay I can do this whatever so I had all these um you know girlfriends and they were you know we were in my dorm room and we were getting dressed and I put on the wig and I put on the stockings and this dress and the little foa or feather boa whatever it is and um I looked at myself in the mirror and when I saw myself in this hyper feminine expression, it just clicked for me. And I was like, this feels right. And I couldn't explain it. And I didn't have the words for it, but all that came to mind was the laughter from behind me as my girlfriends were laughing about it. And they all thought it was this big joke because going in with it too it kind of was supposed to be this joke it's supposed to be this fun halloween drag kind of outfit wasn't supposed to be serious but it felt serious in that moment and hearing their laughter it made me feel like this was supposed to be a joke this isn't supposed to feel like this and so i buried that feeling and a year later i was studying abroad so i was no longer around those girlfriends i was no longer around my Chapman University community, I was around a whole new group of people on semester at sea. 
and that's a program that we're on a cruise ship for a whole semester and we go sit you know to different countries and we explore and learn more and engage with the community it's a beautiful experience and because i felt like i had a whole new community around me i tried it again for halloween i was like let's let's do this again and this time i dressed up as ursula from the little mermaid but when she transforms into like the beautiful you know seductress or whatever right And we were in Vietnam at the time, and I had a custom-made dress done for me. I got a wig, I got some shoes. And when I dressed up again, I had that same feeling again. But this time, I had a different community around me. And the community this time was like, you look so beautiful. You look amazing. And they celebrated me instead of laughing. And from that moment on, Halloween 2011, I not only felt the aha moment that I did the year earlier, but I also felt the celebration. And that completely launched me off into my gender journey. So from then on, I started, you know, uh, growing up my hair more. I started wearing more makeup. And I did more quote-unquote drag and cross-dressing. And I got to the point two years later when I was like, you know what? I know it's not just about how I look it's about how I feel and I don't feel like a man and I don't feel like a woman I'm non-binary the LGBTQ plus community encapsulates so many different spectrums of identity each with their own set of struggles so when I think about spectrums of identity they can include race class nationality ethnicity um abilities. Um, So many different things go into our spectrums, right, and our identities. But for the LGBTQ plus community, we're dealing with sexual orientation, gender identity, sex identity, gender expression, right? And those are four things that each have different issues and different needs as well, too, right? So we're talking about trans people. Trans people can also be straight, or queer, or bisexual, or whatever be, right? And queer people could be trans, could be cis, could be whatever, right? Could be intersex. Um, Intersex people could be queer, could be straight, could be trans, could be not, right? Because sometimes intersex people, when they're often assigned a gender at birth of being a boy or girl, even though they're intersex, right? Most intersex people actually grow up and they continue to identify with the gender that they were assigned at birth right? But the issue is around surgeries at birth, right? Not necessarily around coming out as a certain gender identity. Now we're getting into more transgender issues, right? So you see how sometimes there are different issues and different needs. But what's interesting, what brings us all together is that stigma that we face, is that we're supposed to fit into a neat box, right? And that we have certain roles that we're supposed to follow as men and women, male, female, masculine, feminine, right? And our community just doesn't do that. So that's how we that's how we all come together is by what we face and by what we go through, not necessarily because of how we identify, but because the world doesn't see us differently. You can be a a gay man walking down the street, a trans woman, an intersex person too, and people see you because you look different and they can call you the same slur right? Because they see us all as the same, unfortunately. 
So because we're seen as all the same, we have to unite together. We have to be there for each other and support each other. And we have to recognize too that under that, under that umbrella, some of us have privilege, some of us don't, right? And so we really have to recognize, okay, what do I go through that is a little bit easier than my trans women of color siblings or my intersex siblings or whoever it be, right? How can I really step up and support them? Because we're all going through the same shit. We're all going through these same systems, right? Make sense? Yeah, definitely. You um, you kind of hit something too where you talked about your, I think you said it was your white privilege mm. a little bit ago. Yeah. Your experience can be really hard just taking the dog out. Do you feel like your friends, people who are, let's say, trans women of color, yeah. face even more animosity just because they're not white? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that... Um, Cutie Pock, which is queer and trans people of color, especially black and indigenous queer and trans people, go through so many more obstacles and hoops and loops and isms than I will ever have to. And that's not something that I just know from experience. It's something that we see in statistics and data too, right? Um, and in fact, too, when we're thinking about Trans Day of Remembrance, which, which just passed, most of the list are transgender women of color, specifically black, Latina, and indigenous trans women. And we also think too about how 61% of murders, of transgender murders since 2008 have been of sex workers. We also have to think too that many of these trans women of color are denied employment opportunities and economic achievement and the ability to thrive, that they have to you know, really rely on survival sex work in order to live and to just survive, not even thrive, just to survive. And there's nothing wrong with sex work, of course, but when that's your only option and that option comes with so many layers of stigma and violence in itself too, from clients and from police officers too, who are also racially motivated, right? and also transphobic, and may even take advantage of those situations too to sexually assault those trans women of color who are engaging in sex work, you just have to think too about how many more obstacles they go through. When I used to work at Trans Latina Coalition and APAIT and Strength United here in Los Angeles County providing services to survivors of violence or people who were homeless or people who needed HIV care, most of my clients and most people that I see from my programs were transgender women of color. So it's just, I didn't see a lot of white non-binary or trans people like me. I saw people who were at those intersections of facing multiple layers of oppression, multiple forms of isms, right? And navigating that in a way where they're just trying to survive. And for me, thankfully, I am not at that point where I'm just trying to survive. I can thrive. I can be me. I'm in love. I have a good job. I have my own business. And I have a loving, supportive community, too. And I also have the tools in order to be me and be successful. And these are tools that I know and a family and so many other opportunities that I know have come to me because of my white privilege. And that's something that our own community has to recognize too, that it's not just about being gay or trans will 
mean that you're going to be susceptible or vulnerable to all different types of hate. We might even be able to get into more rooms and more opportunities because of our white privilege, right? And that's not something that's bad to talk about. It's just a fact. And once we acknowledge it as a fact and we can address that, we can really leverage that in order to make more significant change for the community and really step up as allies, step up as advocates, step up with our platforms and privilege in order to make that change. To circle back um, to the the role model you have, Mm. their YouTube channel, have you spoken to that person since? I tried. Since they detransitioned? Yeah, I've tried. Um, I let that person know that, um, you know, that I'm always here to talk, you know, for them to talk to me if they ever want to. And, um, that person, um, just ignored my messages and I don't expect, um, anything to come out of it necessarily, but I do hope that they know that if they do ever want to talk about it and I don't know, just open up a little bit more too that they can, but Again, I don't know the full story, and I don't know everything that they've been through. Um, but I hope that one day or at some point they have the tools and community and support that they need. And this person is, you know, talking about um, race, right? This person was a openly gender nonconforming black person too, right? So thinking too also about all the layers that they're going through that... I haven't had to go through, right? And all the pressure to to conform. Yeah. It's it's tough. It's like I was saying earlier, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that we go through as community members too. And at the same time there's so much hope. I mean, just this year alone we've seen more trans and non-binary people in media than ever before. I've I've been seeing so many more people not just writing books about trans and non-binary people, but trans and non-binary artists and writers taking those steps to share their own stories too. I love seeing how much advocacy is coming out of the world right now too. And even though we're in a chaotic and scary time with our own government too, I feel that sometimes it's under that type of pressure that the most beautiful organizing and ideas come out. And that's what I've been seeing is so much resilience, so much strength. And I know that our future is only going to get brighter and we'll have more opportunities to be not only us, but to thrive as non-binary, intersex, trans people. Not only is Addison doing amazing advocacy work within the LGBTQ community, but they're also committed to simply being a beacon of light and hope. Addison is an activist you want to keep up with. So if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can find me at, um, at breakthebinary. So B-R-E-A-K-T-H-E-B-I-N-A-R-Y. I had to like think about that for a second. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, which is Addison Rose Vincent. You can follow um, my business too on Instagram or on Facebook at Break the Binary LLC. You can also follow Nonbinary Union of Los Angeles if you'd like to join our monthly uh, social events. That is um, at the Nebula, so T H E N B U L A. 
Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Um, just want to let folks know that, you know, if you're listening and you're someone who's struggling with your own gender identity or your sex identity and you don't feel like you have anyone to talk to, please know that you can always message me, that there are so many people out there that understand what you're going through and that you're just not alone, that I'm here for you, I support you, and you'll get through anything. Thanks for listening. We want to take a minute now to honor Trans Day of Remembrance, which was on November 20th. At least 22 trans and non-binary people were killed this year in the U.S. alone. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. because it makes me feel like a pilot oh my gosh right like we should be like and we're coming into chicago thank you very much for flying please stow your yeah you're my co-pilot i love it okay